You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. Peninsula. We never speak of it, but here we know the land cannot be trusted. So a woman might reach out her hand towards a rail in Debenhams and for a fraction of a second knows the earth beneath the town is shifting as limestone lays itself open to rain. Grains of sandstone slacken, then let go. Cracks in old mine shafts expand and another gram of soil slips sideways without a sound. She picks out a dress in pink, pulls it up to a friend, they laugh link arms on their way to Costa and sit mocker as the Permo-Triassic rocks dip further west. The glacial sediments of Walney drift towards the spits and the peninsula hunches down in the astounding wind. Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, poet Kate Davis, reading Peninsula from her book The Girl Who Forgets How to Walk. The music is by Richard Skelton. More from Kate very soon. And I'm your host, Justin Hopper. I'm speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal, through the conversations and accompanying detritus that comprise these podcasts, to determine, and slowly, poorly, define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. Here we know the land cannot be trusted. What does it mean to know a landscape so closely, so intimately, to be connected to it so deeply that one knows it to be unreliable, knows it to be worthy of our love, but not our trust, to know that, as Kate Davis will say, even mountains and rocks are shapeshifters, are never final. Here we know the land cannot be trusted. Kate Davis knows. She knows of that thing in the landscape, that which follows, stalks from the corner of an eye. It is this uncanny relationship which is developed in Kate's astonishing book of poems, The Girl Who Forgets How to Walk, published by Pen in the Margins. Such ghosts haunt about the edges of Kate's book, as she examines her relationship with one particular place, the strip of land called the Furnace Peninsula, into which she was born and where she has always lived. One of these specters is entirely nameable, yet remains outside of definition or containment in its agency throughout Kate's life and her poems. Polio. It is her bout with polio and its repercussions that has made her relationship to that landscape more tenuous exaggerating the questions, 
and the uncanniness, even as it brought her so close to the ground that she could peel back its skin. And it is that relationship which has made her sublime experience of place a unique and poetic one. Kate Davis is a poet, performer, an amateur taxidermist, an ocean swimmer, and more. In The Girl Who Forgets How to Walk, Davis uses a variety of strategies. Realist and fantastic and lyrical poems sit beside the documentary ones made from geological reports, historic landscape writing, volcanology and meteorology, and cartographic description. And it all comes back to what she'll describe as her closest relationship, the one she has to the ground itself, the limestone of the Furness Peninsula in northwestern England, where she grew up outside the village of Great Erswick, beside the farm, under Skelmore Head's fort. And here, describing Furness and the island on which she now lives, is Kate Davis. Yeah, oh, I have lived here. I've lived on the Furness Peninsula. It's actually Barrow in Furness. Not Furness, it's Furness. And um, people locally are a little bit sensitive about that as well, as people often are about their place names. Uh, and, not, uh, and usually people people here will, will say Barra rather than Barrow. Um, we drop a lot of um, starts and ends of words. It's a kind of a local dialect thing. Um, yeah, so it's it's quite isolated it is a peninsula and it's on the right on the bottom end of the west coast of Cumbria so no one is ever just passing through Barrow you've got to be going there which is why most people have never been there lots of people have heard of it because of we build nuclear submarines so it's often in the news we're often in the news for things like um well all the all the things you don't really want to be in the news for like um you know the rate of of um drug-related deaths or, you know, whatever, um, coastal isolation and poverty and those kind of issues. Um, so, yeah, we, we do get quite a bit of negative press around at times, which is really unfortunate because I'll just mention this. Um, Barrow is the number one borough in the whole of England for the quality and extent of its natural resources. That means that we are the most beautiful place in England. Uh, we have the most beautiful land around us. No one could claim that Barrow itself is, is a beautiful town because it isn't. It's an industrial town and it's actually quite young. Um, it's only, well, less than 200 years. I mean, industrial revolution, you know, the founding fathers found a lot of hematite ore and rolled up and proceeded to build a shipyard and that's where Barrow came from. Um, the landscape, so I, I was actually born about a few miles inland from Barrow, so further up the peninsula. Uh, and looking down towards Barrow. So when I look towards the, uh, uh, the southwest, which direction? Anyway, down towards the end of the peninsula where Barrow was and the lighthouse, which I could see from my bedroom and used to count the seconds between the flashes every night. Um, I was sort of slightly higher looking down, but the peninsula itself, like, like most coastal regions, is just flat. Um, but as I say, it was, quite, it was a little bit more hilly where I live, but, but I'm looking down a long, flat peninsula. And I now live on the island, Walney Island, just off the end of Barrow, which is, it's just a ribbon. It's a, it's a spit of land, which is actually increasing in length with deposition from the, from the sea. Uh, and again, it's just glacial clay, really, and it barely rises out of the sea. Is it the kind of place that's an island, like Seattle has the, loads of these. It's an island, but it's part of the town. So Barrow, there's a lot of islands around Barrow. A part of Barrow, which is now part of the town, is actually called Barrow Island. 
uh, and that's part of the town, but it's also part of the docks system. So you can see where it, it wasn't part of the town, but it now is. There's lots of other smaller islands around. Walney Island is part of the borough of Barrow, but it's actually separate. There's just one bridge onto Walney. Uh, there's one way on, uh, and that's the bridge. If the bridge gets stuck in the up position, we're all stuck, and that does happen. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's and it's long and thin. It's, I don't know how long it is actually eight, ten miles long, probably, but really, really narrow, really narrow. It's, it's, you know, you could throw a stone from one side to the other in some places, you know, and it might be half a mile in others, but it's just a narrow, narrow, long strip of uh, beautiful land. And it's quite, the central part is quite uh, densely populated because when the shipyard was built, Vickers, uh, who built the shipyard, just developed it for um, for people for work workers. So on the island, you've got the houses that were built for um, you know the the sort of labouring and the workers and the uh, the, uh, the trades people, um, you know the people who actually built the boats. And those are the houses that I live in, the terraces. And then there's other houses which were built for the managers and then you know uh, the you know the farmers. So you can see in the part of the island is actually called Vickers Town, and it was because Vickers built it for. For the workers so part of the town but also quite separate. The place that I was born and brought up uh, although it's only I don't know six seven miles away and it's further inland and it's higher um, it's very different it's much more the kind of landscapes you're talking about rural but not in a rural idyll sort of way quite a raw kind of uh, landscape uh, so um, farms you know, quite isolated farms, woods, there's a town in the village. I lived about half a mile from the village. But the thing that, that was the most kind of um, formative thing for me was the limestone. So um, it's a limestone landscape. Um, and it, the place where I lived, it's a hill called Skelma, uh, Skelmer's Hill, uh, which is the place of the skulls. It's quite a, uh, it's an archeological site. Um, it's covered in huge limestone blocks and boulders, which were absolutely, they fascinated me as a child and they still do. And the wood around my house, I was born in the edge of the wood and the whole wood is just a great big jumble of limestone rocks with trees growing all over them sort of thing. So uh, that limestone and, and, the, and the, the way that the stone is so close to the surface, so the soil on the top is incredibly thin, you know, it's like a skin. It's like a skin on the earth, which is, you can just peel it back. So there's bits of stone sticking up, which always made me think of bones. And it still does actually, because this limestone's quite white. Um, so, and, and I spent a lot of time when I couldn't walk, sitting, you know, in that, in that place, just pulling the edge of the turf back around these sticking out stones and just looking at what was underneath and poking around for hours because to be honest I was quite restricted you know I couldn't get that far anyway so uh, yeah a lot of my time was spent looking at the small details that were right close to the earth which is part of my I think where my sort of sense of belonging to the earth comes from that those years spent being so close to, to the ground, literally just sitting on the ground, sitting on the rocks, poking around in moss. You've just mentioned, you know, when I couldn't walk. Could you tell me, first of all, what year were you born? And and secondly, do you mind talking about, about getting polio and, and how that occurred and what happened? No, I never mind. I never mind talking about it, really. Um, 
I was born in 1951 and I caught polio. Well, I think my mum said, oh, you were four, but my mum's quite vague about these things. There was five of us. We, well, she had a really difficult life. So, um, you know, she was, she worked as a cleaner or, you know, various jobs and, and there was a lot of illness in the family, bizarrely, um, but all different, you know, all different illnesses. Uh, so my mum, I don't think she was right. I think I might have been a little bit older than four. Um, I think I might have been five going on six. Because I'm fairly sure I could read and write quite well. Um, so, yeah, I caught polio. And um, and I didn't, I didn't know. Well, I thought I dreamed it. And, you know, there's a, there's a, I was listening to some of your other podcasts and other people have mentioned this thing. Um, you know, this sort of association between dream and memory and imagination. And I've never really, you know, there's lots of things that I'm never quite sure, particularly things surrounding that illness, which I was never quite sure which was which. And I've thought some things I've thought were reality. So, so for instance, in the book, uh, there's a sequence of dream poems. And, and I um, and I remembered this dream all my life. And it was a strange dream. Um, a dream about being on a train and, and the woman from the farm nearby was there who, who would never be there because she didn't do things like that. She stayed on the farm. Uh, and I remembered, and I, in the dream, I was over water. Uh, and in the dream, I was hot. And, and it's, it's a dream I've always remembered. And it would come back to me every so often, this very vivid dream that I had. Uh, and then, and this was actually the, the kind of catalyst for putting the book together about a few years before I put the book together, maybe a year or two, I went up to the farm where, where I, I used to live near a farm and I went up to see the people who lived there, who I've known literally all my life. So the farmer who lived there um, happened to say to me, like, it's exactly as it says in the poem, how's your leg? And I said, oh, it's a bloody nuisance. And then, and then he started telling me about how, uh, how ill I was. And he said, oh, oh God, you know, we, th we thought you were going to die that night. And I said, oh, no, I, w I was never ill. It wasn't. I wasn't poorly in the sense of being um, being sick. I just woke up and I couldn't walk. And I said, no, no, you were so ill. We thought you were going to die that night. And our mum nursed you all that night. That was the lady in the in the dream. And, and he said, do you, do you not remember any of it? And I said, no, but I know what she wore because I remember the dress. It's the, it was a grey wool dress. And I remember the heat of it on my face. So what I thought was... Um, a dream was actually a memory and I'd taken another memory and added it in in the way that you do uh, and that's when I, I started to sort of like all the things that I've been writing about all these things for years which I never really linked closely I knew they were all linked but it was like having lots of muddle drawers in a chest and not knowing really what should go where so all those things started to make sense and I started to consciously then write the things that I remembered and I thought about as they came into my head in no particular order. And some of them I did find quite shocking, like the one about um, the coldness, because part of my unusual polio symptoms is that I have a, a neuropathy, which is a bit of a, well, it's a lot of a pain actually, but it, it made my leg intensely cold. And the cold was one thing I, I have always, you know, had a problem with. Um, but as a child, it was, I can't think of a word for it. It was worse than horrible. It was, um, 
it was so miserable the coldness of it it was like having a dead thing attached and uh and i used to want to just i used to imagine in my head taking it off it's like in the poem just taking it off and just putting it down somewhere um so that i didn't have to i didn't have to feel it anymore that that painful cold um from this neuropathy and that that's one of the poems and when i wrote that poem and the words the dalag came into my head and those images of cadavers and morgues and graves and stuff i i remember going oh you know i was quite shocked by how um how sort of violent and um sort of gothic and and unpleasant that memory was unpleasant's not the right word but how powerful it was even you know even now those those words that you know so some of the things that i wrote um i never i don't remember actually thinking oh, i think i'll write about so and so consciously if you see what i mean i just find myself like ideas will come into my head and i'd start um you know putting ideas uh, other ideas to them and 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 so all the things that i've been thinking about and writing about almost unconsciously for years like ground archaeology volcanology all those ideas and stuff which never seemed to know which draw they belonged in all started to kind of stick together uh, and then i started finding uh, other bits of the story that seemed to want to be told and i'd, and I'd just write those in as well and it ended up huge <laughs> absolutely huge Dream. In the farmhouse where 60 years ago the woman in the dream laid muslin cloths on jugs of yellow milk, her son is settling his great frame into an old armchair, making his usual half-joking complaints. I'm buggered last, too old, can't pull my weight. I answer back as always, make some crack, go out to put the kettle on. He watches. How's your leg? No different, I say. Still a bloody nuisance. Here's your tea. He considers me. Bye, you were ill, he says, and shakes his head. I frown. Not ill. Not sick at any rate. Nothing hurt. I didn't feel unwell. When I got up, my legs wouldn't work. I couldn't stand. I couldn't figure out where it had gone wrong. They seemed to have forgotten how to walk. He shakes his head again. You were so ill, we thought you'd die. Your little body was too hot to touch, except for your right leg. That was cold as stone. Oh, Mum nursed you all that night. Don't you remember any of it? No, I say, but... And words are trying to find their way back from another continent, negotiating footpath long grown over. But I think I know exactly what she wore. A dress, a grey wool dress and a grey brooch. Well, my mum said, um, you can't pull your swimming, falling in the uh, boating pool at Morecambe. Morecambe's just like a seaside town. So if you went for a day out, 
you went to Markham kind of thing. And, and so once in the summer, maybe not even every year, we would have a day out, we would go to Markham, which is the, and when to get to Markham from Barrow, the train from Barrow actually goes across two viaducts. So you're going over water. So I know that I'm fairly sure that I did go to Markham, which is why the train going over water appeared in my dream memory. It was linked into it. Um, I don't know whether I slipped under the water before I saw the boatman's face or after, or whether he was shouting at me after I'd fallen under the water. But I, I think I remember slight, slipping under the water and I, and I, uh, and then being in trouble, you know, getting out. Um, but once I got out, I was in trouble with my mum and I was in trouble with, you know, the boatman and stuff. And, and, and um, yeah, the sort of trouble that makes your mum somewhat ashamed of you. <laughs> I, um, well, when I first caught polio, the thing I remember was sitting on, getting out of my bed and finding that my legs wouldn't work and I was sitting on the floor and looking at the ground. Um, and I remember the sun coming in and I think I had yellow pyjamas on um, and being mystified and also thinking I'm probably in trouble because things are not working right and it must be something I've done and just sitting there and waiting till someone came and got me. I remember my dad carrying me to uh, the doctors in Ulverston and being uh, almost collapsing when he got me there. It was a long way, it was a long way, it was a few miles and, I, and it was snowing. And, and then, when you say, when you say carrying you, do you mean he picked yeah, you up and walked? Yeah. He, he, we didn't have a car, we didn't, uh, yeah, we didn't have a car and um, then the bus service was really poor and, and maybe like there was two ways to get to, to the doctors. One would be a bus through the village, which was every two hours. The other would be to go about a mile or a bit more than a mile to the main road and you'd get a bus in 20 minutes. So I think what he'd probably done was carried me to the main road, which was about a mile or more. Um, and then carried me from the bus stop in town to the surgery. And uh, and I do remember him, and I was worried about my dad because I remember him sort of half fainting when he got there. Um, and again, thinking, I, I wasn't worried. I was just sort of mystified in the way that you are as a child when things are happening to you. Um, but, and then the next thing I remember is being wrapped in a red blanket with um, in the hall of the, the front of my house and ambulance people there talking quietly to you know about me to my mum and my dad um and my mum do you know that thing mums do where they where they lick a handkerchief and they wipe you something off your face like that doing that and being oh i don't you know, i hate that don't don't do that and i remember doing that and then um yeah just being carried and uh put in an ambulance and and i was taken to um an isolation hospital here um and put in an isolation ward, which is the cot in the isolation um, hospital. Uh, and I was there for quite a long time, months. And yeah, so, and, and I, my legs weren't working properly at the time, but then they started, I, I, I had some mobility left, but then by then I've got what's called a drop foot. So if you've ever seen, you know how people who've had a stroke uh, often walk it's similar very similar to that so instead you can't pick your foot up you can't you can't move your ankle so I had that so I had to I had to walk by picking my foot up uh, and putting it down in front of me and it's a very slow process 
so yeah it's, it's not an easy way to get around and then some of the doctor one of the doctors in particular that I was under uh, designed me a, a caliper system so I started to have to wear calipers and boots and uh, you know orthopedic boots and things um, so it was physically not as difficult to get around with those things on but mentally it was horrible I can't tell you how how horrible it was to have to wear those those boots actually um in particular so that it meant that um I could get around from where I lived to school it was a mile and a half and it was just way too much for me so the council arranged for the guy from the garage to come and pick me up in the mornings and take me to school in the back of his pickup it was a yellow pickup and um yeah because I, I just couldn't walk that far I could only manage short distances but even then when I got to school I hated those shoes so much I would take them off and put my PE shoes on and then I'd put it all back on again when I went home so my mum didn't know because I'd rather fall over than wear that that horrible stuff and then oh you, you know you become people doing things to you becomes your way of life so I'd be admitted to hospital and I'd be in plaster for months on end and I have no idea what they were doing or you know what it was for but all these therapies and various things physiotherapy all kinds of things would happen to me without much you know like my really un understanding what was going on uh, and then uh, there'd be surgery I had surgery and uh, and then so I couldn't walk again um for, for those periods and um yes and, and was this was this always sort of um interspersed with periods where things were better or yeah it wasn't that I couldn't walk all the time there were periods where people were doing things to me and I couldn't walk and I wasn't allowed to walk and the the, 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 the thing about forgetting was at one of those periods I'd had some treatment and um I wasn't allowed to walk for three months and the day came when I was taken back to the hospital and I knew that that was going to be the day when I would be allowed to walk again and I was so looking forward to it I was so looking forward to that moment and I remember them saying okay you know um okay you can walk now and I'd literally I stood up and I had literally forgotten how to walk and I was so shocked that you know my, I had just forgotten uh what to do to walk again um Right. And, and that's because I, I imagine that as being, you know, somewhat metaphorical in that your, your body doesn't, you know, have the muscle memory, so to speak. No, I think it was, I think it was more muscle memory than anything else, but, but it was mentally, it was a real shock. I wasn't expecting it. I was expecting to get up and walk across the floor in the way that I normally would. And I, and I simply couldn't do it. And it took me a little while just to get that muscle memory back. I think it was almost entirely muscle memory, really. But it did take me a little while to get back. Uh, but, those, but, the, but, but those periods of... So when, when the book's called The Girl Who Forgets How to Walk, most of it wasn't actually forgetting it was being in a position where I was forced to forget I, or you know I'd spend a lot of time sitting outside the house watching everyone else play in the you know in the field because for some reason I wasn't allowed to or I couldn't and, and um so so when they had a game going if I was able to join in which I, I did um you know at times but I always had to go in early because I always had physiotherapy to do which meant I was laid down and 
you know, my limbs manipulated and things. So, so a lot of it was just not being allowed to walk or uh, not being able to walk as well as actually, you know, forgetting the, the process of walking. And one of the things that you do so magnificently in this book is put these pieces such as the sequence, the, the girl who forgets how to walk sequence in between these pieces that are, you know, documentary poems of archeological or geological information and, um, and sort of cartographic poetry and, and those kinds of, those kinds of pieces um, in a way that makes them read entirely differently because because of course, when you read this poem about someone who, you know, we talk so often about landscape, about people having roots and people being rooted to these places. And, and you have, you know, you, you've lived your whole life in this era, in this region, and you know it like the back of your hand, as they say, and, and, um, and you write about it so eloquently. And yet we get the impression from this that you also feel that it's unknowable, that, that you don't perhaps have the kind the kind of the kind of trust in this landscape that someone else might um and uh and i wonder if you can talk a little bit about starting to walk in the sense of not the physical ability to walk but becoming a walker becoming someone who um explores and examines and looks deeply at this place and and finds this thing that you can simultaneously love and not feel able to rely on. For me, the place, the land, the ground under my feet is kind of, a, um, it's the thing I feel closest to, not just physically, but in other strange kind of emotional ways. But it's also my worst enemy in, in some respects. I, I, I don't find the ground trustworthy. Um, Partly that's because growing up on a limestone landscape, limestone is soluble um, and boulders move and rocks and stones move and walls fall over and near my house, very near my house, in the next field along, there was a big, big dip, a big dip, an unnatural dip and you know, my brothers and sisters used to play in there and we used to sledge down into it and things. I never liked that hole in the ground. I've always been very suspicious of it. And um, and of all holes in the ground. <laughs> um, and I, so there's that, that notion that, that the limestone itself is not to be trusted. It is uneven, it trips you up. It makes me fall over quite a lot. Um, but also it's soluble and it, and it can and will give way, you know, at, at any point really. And I've never, I've never thought that um, land, landscape, rock, buildings in particular, big things, I've never thought of them as being permanent, not just buildings, but natural things as well, like mountains. So, so in my head, mountains, I can see them within seconds, you know, being being pushed up by tectonic plates um, and I can see mountains being pushed up and I can see the erosion happening and I can see them being subducted and um, being oh, washed away and sediment forming layers and those layers being compressed and those layers being pushed up again and then and heat and pressure and all those things happening almost within you know the space that I can say it in and, and that's how it feels to me, that that's how the world is, that it's constantly, constantly changing, which it is. 
a rock is never the same rock all the time it becomes another kind of rock it, it's it's dissolved it's it's subducted all kinds of things happen and it becomes another kind of rock um so this i have a sense that nothing is permanent um same with buildings and somehow the bigger the building or the bigger the ship or whatever the less i i, I trust it and the more i think I know what you're up to. You're trying to fool me with that size and that massive, you know, bulk that you've got there. And I know that underneath you there is there's black earth and there's white roots waiting and there's worms. And you know, if we leave you for no time at all, really, you will just vanish. You'll just melt. And those worms and that and those plants will be where they were before you showed up. Tarn, adapted from Roper, churches, castles, etc. of North Lanx, 1880, and History of the County of Lancaster, Volume 8, London, 1914. The village lies around the northern end of a large tarn, formed, according to local tradition, by a sudden subsidence of the earth, the ancient village being submerged at the same time. The women of the village were said to have asked the priest to pray for a plentiful supply of water. A copious stream filled the beck, but when it was rendered muddy by the rains, the women were again dissatisfied and taunted the priest. An earthquake followed and the red earth fell away. Obviously, the, the sort of geography and geology of a place uh, defines it to some extent in every case, but it just seems as though where you have lived your whole life is a place that is even more sort of defined by its geography than, than most. You know, whether that's, maybe it's just less subtle. I mean, it doesn't seem like the kind of place that has all that much subtlety to it. It seems like a sublime kind of grand you always know more about the geography and the weather and the air of the place than here, I think, than you, than you do in, in a lot of places. So I always think like you could be standing at the bus stop by the town hall, you know, in the middle of Arrow, and you can't, you can't see the sea. But if you'd, never, if you'd just been parachuted there and you had no idea where you were, you would know that you were near the sea by the, by the wind and you'd know that, that that wind is moving over water and it's coming at you. So there's... There is a very definite sense of rawness here, uh, you know, in, to and in the landscape. Um, I don't even, raw is, yeah, I think it is quite raw in many ways. It's, um, it's exposed and it's vulnerable. Um, and the wind is always blowing. The wind is always blowing here. Um, and, and yet there is something sublime about it. Travel writers always say, don't bother going to Furness Peninsula. There is no point. There's nothing there. There's nothing to see. Just, you know, carry on round up the coast. Um, but it, it is sublime. And there, are, and there are places here which are 
completely, you know, utterly sublime. Um, small in in a not in a spectacular way, not like the Lake District Mountains and the you know Wordsworth Peaks and um, and I think in some respects that's why this place suits me because I'm, I'm never looking at the peaks. If I look at the peaks, I'm going to be falling over. I look at the ground. I've spent a lifetime literally looking at the ground. I when I'm I, mean, I do trip up inside the house sometimes. But when I'm outside, I literally watch every step. I count every step. I pattern every step. I, if I take my eyes off the ground outside the house, there's a very strong possibility I'm going to be falling over. So I look at the ground. The ground is what I know. Swimming. Uh, when when I was at school, our our school, we, we all got bussed to into Barrow um, and taught to swim, which is which was great. And and I as well as knowing that was I was attracted to water. I loved being in the water. I learned to swim, as I say, when I was about, I don't know, probably about eight, seven or eight at school. And uh, I used to cycle all the way from our village, seven or eight miles away, on my little tiny rally bike to Barrow so that I could swim in the pool and all the way home again with my sister. And I, I think, I mean, what I say now is I like being in the water because you can't fall over. I'm the same as everyone else when I'm in the water. But yeah, so swimming was something which I always felt like hugely at ease and and, and at peace in the water. Uh, and we've always swum. So when my kids were little, we didn't swim in the sea so much with them. Uh, we lived in, in, in Wally at that time. We because there was a lot of anxiety about pollution from Sellafield, the nuclear plant, which is just up the coast from us. Um, so we didn't swim in the sea very much. We played on the beaches, but we didn't really swim in the sea. We used to swim in the lakes and the rivers. Um, and, and I started sea swimming again when I, you know, uh, oh, quite, quite, I've been sea swimming for quite a long time now. Um, and it's, it's the power of the sea that attracts me now. I'm not. I'm not worried. I'm not as worried about Sellafield now because I feel that you know lots of things have been put in place, so we don't need to worry about the pollution to the same extent. And I feel much more comfortable in the sea. Um, but it's the power of it. And I, sometimes I'm looking at, and I know it's too rough, and I just want to get in it. I just want to be in, in that power, having it. And I love it when when the tide's coming in, when it's just that little bit too rough for me where I know it's going to knock me over, where I know it's a little bit dangerous. Once you get past the waves, as it's coming up the slope of the beach, it gets, the waves get bigger. But once you get past those bigger waves that are breaking, um, we're not talking California here, but it's still enough to knock you off your feet, you know. Um, but once you get past those, you can swim fairly, you know, fairly safely. But but what happens is the water's rolling in with these, like a big dipper, and it's rolling in, um, and, and these big swells are coming in. And you can just, you can just let your body be lifted and drop with those swells. And it's just the most um, exhilarating, I think, feeling. Oh, we were incredibly poor growing up. We had, you know, we didn't have much of anything, but we, we did, we always got books as presents. You know, at Christmas, you know, you, big, you, you, you know, the best present was, was the book that you got. Um, and, and every week my mum would take us to Ulverston, usually on our bikes, to, I can remember going, every week with my older sister in particular we'll be quite young and going to the library and choosing choosing our books and and I remember also choosing books I think probably it was just me and Janice my older sister because we would be the only two old enough of the five of us able to cycle it so I can remember Janice would pick her you're allowed three books each 
So Janice would pick her three, I would pick my three, and we'd pick three for Elizabeth, my, what, the next sister down of the five of us, um, and going home with them. And then arguing over who was going to have which book first, and you know, and I want that one, and blah, blah, blah. And all I chose that one, so you can't have that till I finished with it. So reading was absolutely huge for us. But so books were a huge part of our life, and I was always interested in in words, and particularly the sound that words make. And I used to wonder to myself, what would happen if you stretched that word off? You did something else with it, or you said it in a different way, or you, uh, or you squish it up, or do something else. So you keep repeating it. What happens? You know, when you repeat a word, it seems to lose its meaning. It becomes something alien and strange. Uh, so all those things about words always interested me, and and. I, I kind of got out of the habit of reading. When my, when my kids were growing up, I was entirely happy playing out with my kids and doing stuff with my kids. Um, I didn't work, I didn't go back to work until my youngest was about, I don't know, I should be about five or six of the three of them. So I had all those years of playing and, and doing stuff. And uh, I didn't really have that much time to read. Um, so I kind of like books and reading were a little bit on the back burner. And then as my kids got a bit older, I decided to a, be a nurse. Uh, so I did an English course to get onto the nursing course. And the thing I absolutely loved was poetry. And, I, and we read a poem by Thomas Hardy. And I remember thinking, oh, another, I'd never, I didn't really know much about Thomas Hardy, but I remember thinking, oh, more bloody boring Victorians banging on about Victorian stuff and it was a poem called Afterwards and um, and, the, and the tutor started reading it and the first line is when the present has latched its postern behind my tremulous stay and he stopped and he said oh oh a postern by the way it's a small side gate and I, I love small gates in walls and doors in walls and stuff it's like a, a portal into another world so I was immediately interested so he started again when the present has latched its postern behind my tremulous stay. But it was when he said the tremulous stay and the postern and those two things together. And I realized that this was an, an old man talking about the present now closing the small side gate behind his trembling stay on earth. And it, I, I keep saying to people, and I've said this lots of times, I, I swear that my heart skipped a beat when I realized what he was saying. And I was so fascinated um, and compelled by this poem. I just wanted to know more about how poetry did the things it could do to you and with you and make you think and feel the things that it did. So I started to read a lot more and, and to study it in a kind of like um, quite informal way, uh, you know, sort of just picking up books, things, I'd, names I'd vaguely heard of or things that I knew a little bit about more like Sylvia Plath and things. Um, and then there was a little writing group in Ulverston, which is a town nearby, and going to that and and trying to, reading things and talking to people and working out how it was working. That was what fascinated me, how these things were working. And um, yeah, unpicking everything. So when I found something that that I was drawn to unpicking it and thinking about how did that person do that thing that they just did? Um, and so I, I started to look at it in a more kind of like um, uh, calculated way, uh, not just for enjoyment or pleasure, but for that understanding. And I decided that I'd, well, I'd, I'd never done a degree. Um, 
and I, I did want to study poetry, but only poetry. And I remember saying to a friend, um, oh, yeah, I'd love to do, I'd love to do an MA in poetry, but, but I can't because I don't have a first degree. And she said, oh, you can. And I, that was like, oh, really? So I did, uh, I, I did get on an MA at Manchester Met, actually. And it was, and the reason I did it was because it was only in poetry. Because I thought, I'm not going to do, I don't want to know about children's writing or, you know, biography or novels and stuff. I want to know how poetry works. And that's why I did the course. And it was really, really helpful uh, in that respect. It was really not helpful in other respects, but I'm really glad I did it. it the more I understood, the more things I had to use, more tools in the box that I could kind of find like that, that thing that I wanted to say. It, was, it wasn't so much saying the thing, but finding a way to, the thing that was linking something, finding a way to make that link more concrete you know I know I knew that the links were there but I couldn't always find how they worked together how they fitted together and so learning about poetry was I think the thing that helped me kind of understand for myself where geology soil um you know ability disability shame um you know taxidermy where all those things fitted together why they why they were important to me so that's 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 when I started writing in a more um, focused, I think, way. And, it, and it's quite interesting to think that um, that, that wound up with, um, with actually being able to do this, you know, if you want to think of it as a sort of scientific effort, <clears throat> actually being able to do this, this kind of dissection of these memories and, and figuring out that some of them might be true instead of just dreams. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what I've been doing is, you know, people use the word exploit or we're exploring things. If you're doing an arts council application, you're always exploring something, aren't you? But for me, it was more like examining, really, like um, just opening, you know, you know, those roles that, that you know, that surgeons uh, tools might have been in more like a fabric roll, those kind of things. It's almost like unrolling something like that again and again and again, and looking at things that were in there and picking things up and uh, and examining them and and starting to understand where all these things um, fitted together. Because, like I said before, I I always knew they did. Oh, I'm so, I'm so, I am definitely, you know, the jack of all trades and the master of none. I, uh, well, <clears throat> about, oh, about 15 years ago now, I was asked to work, uh, do a, a project in Manchester Museum, and it was on the, uh, the primates display of the Natural History Museum, and I worked with uh, a designer from Glasgow and, and an artist from, not from London, oh yeah, no, from London, actually. Um, and what, what we were doing was giving voice to the animals there. So I spent three months in the Natural History Mu uh, Department of Manchester Met uh, Museum, rather. And, uh, and I used to look at the animals and think, and they've quite badly done some. I used to think, I'm sure I can do that. I'm sure I could do that. And it's the sort of thing, because I like making things. I always think of myself, not as much as a poet, as a maker of various things, you know. And, and, I, and for years, I used to think afterwards, oh, Oh, it'd be great, wouldn't it be great to be able to do that? 
But, you know, where, where would you learn a thing like that? Obviously, there's no taxidermists now. They're all Victorian and dead. Um, and if there are, they probably live in the Cotswolds, you know, the bouncing. So, and I did happen to say to someone at work one time, Carol, where would you find a taxidermist? And she went, Yellow Pages. And I went, no. So we looked, we got the Yellow Pages and we looked it up. And it was all up the road, actually, from where I worked. And, and he, um, I rang him up and he eventually answered the phone after about two months. Um, and said, yeah, come on up and I'll teach you taxidermy. Um, and it, it's, it's fascinating. It's actually a lot harder than I thought it would be because you have to understand not just the, the how to do it. You have to understand the musculature. You have to understand that creature's body to be able to reproduce it well. And, and I don't understand enough about them. Um, so my taxidermy is, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'd say I'm quite good at bad taxidermy. Um, so a lot of my taxidermy, you know, that I've done in the past has been, I call it the roadkill revenge. So, so when I find something on the road, I, I reproduce it in the way that I found it on the road, you know. And most of them have got a sense of vengeance about them. So, so my, my hair had a, had a, what do you call it, a Stanley knife in its hand. They're all wreaking vengeance on the, on the people and the objects that have caused their demise. So there's a, a weasel with a, screw and it's guts hanging out and there's a, a hair and there's various other things that I've done over the years because I found it easier than putting the effort into doing it really really well so I'm quite lazy as well as finding you know bad taxidermy hilarious it just and it's endlessly funny and it's um yeah and sometimes I, I just I, you know some people have said to me oh do you not think you should keep the dignity of the animal and I think no I'll, I'll just dress it up I'll make it a hat or I'll make it um I'll make it a little coat and a scarf. So I made my friend, I did a stoat and I made it a, a crumb, like a coat, a crumby coat with a, like a Liberty Act lining and a, a little scarf. So that's the stoat in a coat. Um, so, and, and one of the things I enjoy about taxidermy, I love is the bit where you, you, you make this ventral incision and you open it up and you, you start to take the inside and you put it on the outside. And there's a point where each, the inside and the outside are just joined at the mouth and it's almost like the perfect moment now and I, and I, I think that that is I call it the mirror moment in my head and it's like that creature can see the perfection of its own insides now it can't because it's dead and I've just turned it inside out but it's almost like there's something perfect about the inside of a creature it's patterned which is you know it's pattern, you know feathers create a, an incredible pattern inside a, a skin and uh, yeah there's something jewel-like about the inside of a creature especially when it's still attached at its own mouth that's a bit creepy isn't it <laughs> um well when i wrote the book i i saw it as a kind of piece of raw material so i've made other things from it i made a performance which i now want to develop i did it as a piece of r d and, I, and now i want to develop those things that i did and move it on and break it up a bit actually loosen everything up break it all up and i'm going to work with a sound artist to 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 be doing that more of that and and we also made a film i'll send you a link to the film it's it was made by a filmmaker called julia parks and it's and I, it's just so beautiful she's made such a beautiful thing um, from the book um and and i've also gone back to a thing i wrote I started writing about seven or eight years ago and it's, it's this kind of verse novel and it's 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 called flow and it starts 
uh, in the sort of mid to late Iron Age in, in this part, of this very part of the country. And it follows five, six women as they move across the globe for various reasons. And they are all linked by genetics, but also by their um, need to be in near water. So water is, is a theme running through the things that I, that I write. Thank you for listening to Uncanny Landscapes. We'll be back soon with the next installment. My guest was Kate Davis. Her book, The Girl Who Forgets How to Walk, is available from Penned in the Margins. Follow her on Twitter, at Kate Davis Poet. Her film, based on the book, made with Julia Parks, is online via the Zebra Poetry Film Festival from the 13th to the 22nd of November. That link and others are in the podcast info. The music was Undertow by Richard Skelton, available on his album The Complete Landings from Corbell Stone Press, used with the artist's permission. Links to Richard's Bandcamp site are also in the podcast info. The title theme is by The Belbury Polly. The Uncanny Landscapes icon is by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via Twitter, at OldWeirdAlbion, and find links to everything I've just mentioned in the podcast info on the Uncanny Landscapes site, uncannylandscapes.podbean.com. More installments are coming soon. Follow, subscribe, or rate the podcast if that's an option, or keep a lookout on the wires. And if you've enjoyed it, please share this podcast with like-minded friends as we build the conversation. Until next time. I leave you with Kate Davis and her poem spell. She teaches herself to walk across a limestone landscape. She teaches herself to walk across a limestone landscape. Start. Check. Step. Check. Step. Slow. Slip. Stop. Stop, stop, stop. Start. Step. Step. Step, slope, check, stop. Start, check, step, check, step, slip, slip, stop. Start, step, check, step, slope, step, check, step, 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 step. Start, step, check, step, 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 step.